0: All right, it's great to be here today. My name is Val McCauley. And I am Chris Dunn.
1: And we have started an organization in the Treasure Valley in the state of Idaho called Hand in Hand Family Mentorship, where we match supportive and encouraging individuals with referrals that come to us from the Department of Health and Welfare, Family Advocates, and Boise Rescue Mission Ministries. And all of these organizations work with families And these referrals that we receive are individuals that may be trying to get their children out of the foster system or regain custody. Uh, They may be trying to overcome trauma. They may be trying to get their lives back on track and go on to lead productive lives.
0: Okay, so today we have the amazing privilege of having a man named Matt Shaughnessy with us. We are super anxious to get to know him and hear his story. Uh, We met Matt, actually, when we were foster parents. In fact, you can read our full story online at handinhandmentoring.org. But to be brief, after um, we had a tragic event with one of our foster children, we did some work to clarify laws to protect children in Idaho. And Matt got to know us through our Facebook page, which was called the Idaho Foster Care Reform. So we, through that page, we actually invited people from the community to come and to testify about their experiences within the child welfare protective system. And Matt was actually one of those testimonies. And uh, one of the most compelling testimonies was shared about recognizing the need that we have to be so much more aware of how our decisions uh, in the child protective world are affecting and literally altering the lives of children so since that time we've gotten to know matt and his family more and i cannot say enough good about the privilege it's been to get to know him he's he is an inspiring individual and i think it comes down to this that after i've met matt i've discovered i am a total wimp (laughs) i don't know how to say that any more clear but uh, his story I've gained so much strength from his stories I've felt more grateful in my life, more aware, more positive, and definitely definitely more compassionate so so I want to thank Matt for being here and
1: I do too and uh, we're so grateful to be able to have this conversation with with you Matt and we hope that your life and your experiences will Uh, better help us as mentors, but also give hope to other people who may find themselves in situations like yours. Yours is a story of a lot of determination. You have a fighting spirit. Um, You have a faith in God and a recognition of how much we all need each other to navigate through life successfully. So Matt, would you just take five minutes or so and, and maybe give us a little background, a little bit of your history?
2: Yeah, yeah, um, most definitely. First of all, it's uh, an honor to be here, and uh, I just wanted to thank you for having me. So, you know, we'll just cut straight to it. Um, My life, I'm 38 years old, and I was born in February of 1982, and the best I can give you uh, about that time is um, I was born, basically, for what I understand, the most primitive way a child can be born. There's no records of prenatal care, postnatal care, and so basically what that means is there's also no records of of medical birth, doctor's care or anything like that my My mother had me, she kept me for about ten months, and then I was abandoned by her and uh, to basically to an adoption agency and it's a little vague as to whether I was picked up on the side of the road and brought to an adoption agency or whether I was abandoned at the steps of this adoption agency. But that's that's basically where my life starts is at 10 months old. And uh, you know, the, the doctor's report literally, literally starts off with, it's a wonder this child was even found alive. Uh, there's no records of postnatal care, prenatal care. I was barely alive at that point. And basically my mother just, I guess, did what she could to keep me alive. And then And then that was it. Um, To this day, I I can't find her. I don't know who she is, where she is, even what she is, uh, much less even a father. There is literally no mention of a father because there's no record of a mother anywhere. And so that's basically how my life started. And so that makes me what's known as an orphan, or by definition, a foundling, having no connection to any biological family whatsoever, which is, is being an orphan or being a foundling. That's that that is not something that you ever truly overcome. That's something that you learn to live with when it when it's that type of abandonment. It, 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 it's a very evil thing. And it affects somebody for the rest of their lives when when something like that happens.
0: You so. know, Matt, quick question on that. You know, some people have said, you know, they're so young, they don't even really feel the impact of something that happened when they were, you know, below the age of one. Did you specifically feel that that abandonment at 10 months is there anything specific that you could share that you recognized that actually I can pinpoint that that is from losing that attachment?
2: Oh, at yes, yes. 10 months old. Oh, yeah, most definitely. And, you know, today, in the past 10 i'd say about the past 10 years we've made great discoveries and advancements in the traumatized brain and how the traumatized brain works and how adverse experiences as a child ultimately affect your development and everything on it in into adulthood and so you know as 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 a baby human beings only know certain aspects of life uh, they know eat sleep uh, be, be coddled, be taken care of. And that's about it. And so when that is not met, when that connection is broken, something happens in the brain, the brain and the body begin to change. And the, they've done studies in orphanages and whatnot in Russia, if you've ever heard the term, uh, sleeping like a baby or let the child cry itself to sleep. What we figured out has actually happened in those orphanages is when you have a baby that's laying in a crib and it's screaming, it's crying, it's looking for attention, it's looking to be fed. If that need is not met, then the brain literally begins to shut down as if it is dying mm. and it begins to detach itself from the body. You know, a human being can't fight a lion. And so if a human being is about to be eaten by a lion, in order for the brain to avoid a painful death, it will detach itself from the feelings and all of that. And and so what happens is a baby literally begins to shut down completely to the point to where the brain and body are convinced that it's dead mm-hmm. and then it goes to sleep. And that's what you see happens in orphanages. And, and my whole life I have always had a detached feeling from – just about anybody and everybody I've ever encountered, a detached feeling from society. I, I have literally been to the point in my life where I was convinced that deep down in my soul, deep down in my nervous system, that I could die in public and nobody would do anything about it. I would just be left there to die. And, and so a lot of that feeling, a, a lot of that emotion comes from that moment in time of being yeah. abandoned and and so you know it's 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 some it's, it's something really hard to overcome
1: so it's just a really that neglect from the very beginning probably is very impactful what what ended up happening after 10 months well what uh, happened from there
2: so from what i understand uh uh i i went under the care of an adoption agency, and they placed me into foster care. And so I was I was in a foster home up until about uh, two and a half years old. And I actually had a different name. Once I uh, was doing the investigation into my past, trying to figure all this out, I found out that for that time I was with that foster family, they had named me something completely different than what my name is now. And, and so then I lived with them up until about two and a half years old, and then I was adopted out to the family that gave me legally my name that I have now, which is Matthew Shaughnessy. And so they adopted me, and from what I understand, not only were they a family that never should have been allowed to adopt a child in the first place, but that during that time, there were a lot of red flags and markers, things that were happening that somebody should have put a stop to that adoption and placed me back with my foster family. Uh, for example, I found out that a f- about a week or two after I went to live with the Shaughnessy's, they had called the adoption agency and tried to give me back because I had been screaming and screaming on end without stop for days. And nobody could figure out what was wrong with wow. me. You know, n- Nobody was saying what's going on in this child's life that's causing him to scream. No, I was a broken child. I was screaming for days on end. What wow. you know, and and so so honestly, somebody probably should have put a stop to that adoption altogether because I had already been abandoned once by my mother. That connection was broken. Then I get placed in foster care again for a significant amount of time. And I can only imagine that I imprinted these people as my family. These so when I cry, this person comes with a bottle. When I cry, this person comes and holds me. And then once again, here we are in my life. You know, I have no control over the decision. Uh, decision is made in quote unquote my best interest, and they placed me with uh, another family. And so, you so know,
0: for- I, Matt, real fast, I think it's interesting to note that. That you must have been with that foster family for about a year and a half, don't you think that's about yeah. right? yeah, which is a long time to bond and connect, and then, like you said, have that attachment severed once again and and like you said, land in this new situation and
2: yeah, and so so you know, uh you know i I began growing up with the Shaughnessys as my family, but The Shaughnessy's never wanted a child in the first place. Uh, Some of the more simple things that were, I mean, bottom line is it was, it was revealed in court later on in my life that I was adopted under the age old wisdom, which is a terrible wisdom of bring a new baby into a family, save a marriage. And that's ultimately what the root of what happened with the Shaughnessy's happened. And so as I began to grow older, the Shaughnessy's began to become an extremely abusive family both uh, both physically and mentally. And it was, it was both of them, uh, both, both my adopted mother and father, that, that abused me. And then as time went on, they actually ended up getting divorced, which is not a surprise. And then the abuse between my adopted father and myself, because that's who I went to go live with after their divorce, be, uh, began to get extremely severe. But uh, you know some examples of the abuse that I endured. Um, one time I was about five, five years old, and my adopted mother was disciplining me by making me fill up a five-gallon bucket of acorns in the backyard. Only thing is, is I wasn't filling up the bucket fast enough, so she began to throw rocks at me. And uh, she threw a rock at me, and it hit me in the knee, and it cut my knee down to the bone. I'm 38 years old, and I still have the scar. Very, very fresh it's still there today on my knee and um, you know I can remember that that day and I can remember that happening and what she did when that happened obviously there's blood everywhere and my knee is split wide open and I can remember sitting in the bathroom on the toilet as she's going through rolls and rolls of toilet paper sopping up the blood and i you know i i can, I, I can remember realizing at that moment in time because it, it, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to realize this my my mother does she's not doing this because she wants to help me because she split my open. but no she's doing this because she doesn't want to get blood everywhere because she wants to save herself and so mm. that's that's the type of uh, abuse i endured and then they got divorced and the abuse between Tom Shaughnessy and I began to become extremely severe to the point to where even my behavior started to change. And I, I, in in some of my investigation, I went and spoke with one of my school teachers from back then. And I had found out that they too had actually uh, reported my adopted father for abuse because they had seen an overnight change in my behavior. And it was just so drastic, uh, between night and day. And so some of the, uh, some of the examples of abuse that I endured with him were, uh, he was, he was somewhat of a big man and he had big hands. And one of the things that, that he would do would be to hold both of my hands to my chest and then hold his other hand over my mouth and nose to the point to where I couldn't breathe. And he would suffocate me. And in, in in the beginning, it, it's, it's the way it worked with him was in the beginning, I kicked, I screamed, I fought for my life. And so I, he would eventually let go. But as time went on and I became more desensitized to that, it got to the point to where I no longer had an emotion in that moment. I no longer felt it. So when he would suffocate me, I wouldn't fight back. I was completely 100% numb and, and that type of fear. And so he would just suffocate more until um, I, I was, would pass out.
0: That is and so tragic.
2: So, uh, so, you know, obviously that type of abuse can go on for only so long before it, it gets to an ultimate end point. And finally one night, one faithful night, uh, my adoptive father literally tried to kill me and uh, beat me within inches of my life to a bloody pulp. And, and, and like I said, at, at that point, I, I had also been displaying some, some behaviors that were, were really out in left field. Um, I was being suffocated and beaten at home. So I would go out and I would find neighborhood cats and dogs, and I would, I would suffocate them, and I would mm-hmm. beat them and, and stuff like that. And so when the investigation started with Tom Shaughnessy, I ultimately was placed back into the foster care system as a ward of the state. And the first thing that, you know, was said was, oh, wow, this kid has a lot of problems. Uh, look at the things that he's doing. And next thing I know, I get shipped off to a boy's wilderness camp at an extremely young age. And um, that, that was, you know, that was it, what should have happened at that moment in my life, I think, is, is the system should have stepped up and ushered in healing and understanding for experiencing something so traumatic. But instead, they sent me off to the deepest, darkest hole that they could find under the guise of he's showing inappropriate behaviors, he's broken, he needs help. And so they sent me off to to what we call a gladiator school, also known as Boys Wilderness Camp, or also known as residential treatment centers. Boys Wilderness Camp was not fun. I lived there for two and a half years, Matt, how
1: old were you when you went there?
2: Uh, I was eight. My birthday's in February. So I went there in December, two weeks before Christmas when I was eight. So basically eight, nine years old. And uh, at that place, everything was done over an open fire. We had no electricity, no running hot water. Uh, We lived in six-man tents. It was miles and miles away from any civilization deep in the heart of the hill country of Texas. Uh, We lived in the elements, we survived the elements, we braved the elements, and this was a place for what back then was known as level six, level of care children. These are children that had been severely sexually molested uh, to the point to where they themselves don't know any better. Children that were literally born into gangs. Children, you know, we're talking about 10, 11, 12, 13-year-old boys that are toting guns, dealing drugs and robbing Seven Elevens, And, and so uh, the majority of them were already on felony probation, uh, uh, a lot of gang violence, a lot of family violence. And, uh, and so, so I I had been placed there. Uh, Obviously, the system overlooked a lot of things. And and I lived there for two and a half years. And bottom line is, I realized I was never going to get out of there. I had no parents, uh, I had no family. And I was just never going to get out of there. So I escaped when I was around 11 years old after two and a half years. And I had learned so much as far as things that are inappropriate for a child to learn that I I was mature enough to escape such a place at 11 years old and live out on the street versus, you know, living, living like a normal child. At 11 years old, I could convince you that I was 18. I could act
1: like I was 18
2: because in a lot of areas I had developed and was way more mature than I ever should have been.
1: Yeah. You had street smarts basically. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And so,
1: so you were so, on the streets for how long?
2: Oh God, I was, uh, I, that time probably, I think it was about a month or so. I, I wasn't just on the street. I mean, I ran and I hitchhiked and I made it all the way to Marietta, Georgia, from basically yeah. mountain home, San Antonio, Texas area. That was the first time that I got locked up in juvenile uh, detention center. They, you know, I, I got picked up off the side of the road by a state trooper who, obviously, hey, what's this kid doing? You know, hitchhiking through Georgia, basically. And and so I spent oh about a I think I spent about a month in a juvenile detention center in Marietta, Georgia, basically just waiting for the system to come back and pick me up. We I was literally just just there because I was a runaway and the system needed to get a plane ticket. And so I sat in in a juvenile detention center. Uh it was there that I really realized the type of world that I lived in. Um you know it it, it was there that that I saw things that were even worse at wilderness camp. And and so we were walking uh around the gym one afternoon, for example, and just just as fast as night and day, one second we're walking, the next second my buddy grabs me, we turn around, we look, and there's, there's a kiddo being beaten by five other kiddos. Just, I mean, as fast as you could snap a finger. And you're just watching this, and, you know, that kid was dead before the staff members ever got to him. And the way we knew he was dead before the staff members ever got to him was that you could smell it? He had already defecated all over himself. Uh, you know, that's mm, that's that's how I learned while I was in the foster care system in a juvenile detention center. That's how I learned that when a human being dies, they defecate themselves. They release their bowels. That's what death smells like. Mm. And so, you know, I witnessed this, and then weeks later they come to pick me up to take me to the airport because they have a plane ticket and a marshal to take me back to Texas I'm a ward of the state and they shackle me you know they shackle my hands and my waist they shackle my feet together and they walk me through this airport now remember I'm a runaway yeah you know, I haven't hurt anybody I haven't done anything I am a runaway and so you know they 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 treated
0: and, uh, real fast what I think's the hardest part of this story is it looks like you're you're the problem you're the criminal you're shackled and yet you've been the victim you've been created piece by piece by what has happened and they can't control you right that's what they say and so the solution is we'll just tuck him away shackle him imprison him and and you just think what that continues to create inside the mind of a little child. It's yeah. unreal. And,
2: and what's interesting about that, you know, I entered in, into the system, into the residential treatment center program. I was at school. It was weeks after I got out of the hospital. I was in a foster home uh, and I was at school. The only normal, normal thing I had at that moment was the fact that I was still going to the same school. And, and next thing I know, here comes a caseworker and two police officers in the middle of class, in the middle of, of school one day to take me out of school and take me to the YMCA Costa shelter where mm-hmm. I stayed before they took me to wilderness camp. And I mean, that's a, what, what was I supposed to do? I, yeah. I had no control. I had no say so in the matter there, there was nothing there for me. There was nothing that I could have said, Hey, We're here with two police officers and a caseworker, just out of the blue. Here you go. See you later. Bye. I I actually, as I became an adult, went back and found some of my friends from that class. And to this day, they were like, oh, my God, we had no idea whatever happened to you. Mm. Nobody knew what happened to me that day. And so you wonder why they do this to children or a child is raised like this, but then turn around and wonder why is this child acting like that? Exactly. So, and so, you know, here here, here, I was a boy that escaped the level six facility, which the system sent me to. That pretty much marked me for the rest of my time in foster care. And there is a lot of people out there that absolutely would not take in a boy, a male that had escaped the level six facility, except for one man that, that I had met. In my early teens. And this is after I had been to a few placements and already been in trouble. And uh, that was Rick and Loretta Williams at the Coffin County Children's Shelter. And so he was my last chance before they literally put me into what's known as Texas Youth Commission, which is prison for children until you're 18. And, and so my, my caseworker brings me out to the Coffin County Children's Shelter. And the first thing I noticed when we pulled up is this place looks like an actual home it was a big, beautiful ranch style home, single story home. And we walk in and I was already used to the intake process. I was used to the way the system labeled me as violent and all these other terrible things that I did. And so as we're going through the intake process, I noticed Rick Williams looked at my caseworker and said something that changed my life. He said, as she's going down the list, he said, ma'am, I don't care about what's in this baby's past. Mm-hmm. All I care about is what's in his future. I don't need to hear this, and he doesn't need to hear this. And he excused Stop. me from that intake process. Wow. And Rick Rick was, was a karate master. He owned uh, his own karate school, and he used karate and the Bible to, and, and, and everyday action. To, to change my life, both him and his wife. His home was like a real home. He didn't treat me like a case number. He treated me like his own child. He called me baby. I love he, that. He, yeah. Uh, he loved on me every day. And the interesting thing was Rick never tried to fix me. He, he, he never tried to fix me. No, he instilled in me the knowledge and wisdom I needed to fix myself. And he believed in me that mm-hmm. I could do so. And, and so as time went on, though, the system and the way they do things would take me from Rick to you know, punish me for being a runaway. He needs to go to this placement. He needs to go to that mm. placement. And every time I would escape my placements and end up back with Rick. Wow. And so I eventually was allowed to stay with Rick full time. But by that time, I was so far gone in my life that to a certain extent, you could say there was no hope. And so Rick took me in and he loved me no matter what. In the end, I ended up stealing a car from him and, uh, you know, threatening him and his wife. And so thus started my adult life. But what's amazing is afterwards, a few years later, when I came back to Rick and asked him to forgive me, he even then used that moment to teach me. And he Mm. said, baby, I already forgave you a long time ago because forgiveness is for me. It's not for you. Life is too short to live harboring such anger. Now, yeah. if you fast forward, when I graduated out of foster care, uh, around 22, around, uh, shoot, I'm going to say around 20, 2021, around that time, I also ran into my adopted father at a restaurant. Mm. And... Um, Long story short, I was going to kill the man with my mm. bare hands, and I had every reason to write to, to a certain extent. And some of these things like forgiveness and love and and God and Bible that Rick had instilled in me really came to play at that moment. And as I was going to hurt this man in front of me that I just so happened to, to come across, it it's literally as if time stopped and something grabbed a hold of me. And for the first time in my life, I realized two things that nobody had ever really, really taught me growing up. And that's that first and foremost, I have a choice Hmm. and I could choose to allow this man to continue to hurt me and dictate the rest of my life right here and right now by killing him dead or And this is where I learned the second thing, that forgiveness is an action. It's not an emotion. Or I could choose to forgive him. Hmm. And as fast as this hit me, time came back. And instead of killing my adopted father, I remember I reached out and I shook his hand and I looked him in the eye. And I said, you know what you did to me as a child is wrong. And I know what you did to me as a child is wrong. And with that being said, I forgive you. And I'm going to tell you something. I, I, I believe in God and I love God. I'm going to tell you something. That moment, I chose God. I chose God. I chose everything Rick had ever taught me love, friendship, relationships, action. And God really came down onto my life and just began working on me. He's been working on me ever since. So, you know, here I am. I'm, I'm 38 years old. And instead of sitting in prison on death row for unleashing my anger and pain out on society, I'm here talking to you.
1: Matt, that is such a powerful story and a powerful choice that you made. I think your story just shows us how every single interaction with children matters and shapes them and you know you were you were sort of a product of your environment and of course your choices that were affected by your environment as you grew up. Um, but it's such a good lesson for all of us that if we treat people with with love and with kindness, they remember that. It may not change them right at that moment, but it gives them hope that people are good and that life can be good, and people are not born evil, they are put into circumstances that sometimes take them down a very dark road and program their, their brains, you know, in a, in, a, in a dark way. And what an amazing story of you taking that power, the, the little things that you'd been taught and acting in a way that would bring light and, and hope and, and future happiness into your
0: life. So, Matt, quick question on your story of forgiveness with, um, with your foster, I guess it was your adopted father. Do you feel that what Rick taught you is what resonated in that moment, or was that something that, do you know what I'm saying? I'm just curious if... I think, I mean,
2: if you want the honest truth here, you know, I think that was a moment of divine intervention. Yeah. I mean, and what Rick had taught me is what allowed me to see that. Yes. You, you know, Rick, you know, uh,
0: it's super but, human. It just, yes, to be able to do that and, and to put aside such deep, deep, intense pain is, is hard to fathom how you were able to feel that in that moment.
2: Yeah. It, the strength of our father. Yeah. You know, I, I'm only human. I'm, I'm weak, but where I'm weak, he is strong. Yep. You know, and these are all things that, that Rick taught me. And yeah. so w- w- when that time came, when that moment came, I was able to to, to see that and, and, and recognize it. And so it, to this day, I have not experienced anything as powerful as that moment. But I, I truly do believe that our father looked down upon me and realized that his free will had been violated by the system over and over and over again to the point to where i no longer felt like i had free will i no longer felt like i had the ability to choose against what they had labeled me as and that's a terrible person a bad person
0: yeah you know know, uh i've known matt for what five years now do you think that's probably what it is
2: yeah we're going on six yeah something like that and and
0: every time we get together matt tells more and more depth to his story. I mean, what we've heard here is literally one one thousandth of the experiences that he's had and the feelings that he's experienced. We just barely touched the iceberg, the tip of the iceberg with what, um, with what Matt has shared today. Um, but I want, I want, and, and we're going to do a part two of Matt's life. We've we kind of touched on his childhood and how it's important to recognize that how he was how intervention happened with him actually did not happen there was no intervention he was um, he was a product of the state he was uh, more than anything treated inhumanly by those who associated with him there were very few moments of light and peace in his childhood and what i find significant is that when Matt tells his stories, and this is the part that touches me, he recalls every single individual that had a positive impact on his life. It's amazing. And he was so little and he was so young, but there were certain relationships where people treated him respectfully and and like a human being, and he recognized that. And I think it was those small things coupled with the soul of Matt who he really is that helped him to just believe that things would get better, you know, that things would change. But so Matt, I just, I want to thank you so much for sharing your story. Um, I know there was a time in your life that you couldn't really talk about these things. And that's what the next episode will talk about is what was the intervention that Matt did to be able to now come back and heal from this trauma and to be able to, to share these things, I think, I hope everyone that's listening can grasp this unique opportunity to talk to Matt. I, this will sound wrong, but it almost feels like he's speaking from the dead in the sense that most people who have gone through what Matt has gone through do not live to tell their story. And in fact, Matt, wouldn't you say that most of your associations during your upgrading and childhood, they either committed suicide. Yes there I mean touch, yeah. take one minute and just touch on that uh
2: yeah um they've got they've got one brother that I keep in touch with now that is doing life in prison for murder, and over the course of the past few years, I've consistently got emails, Facebook messages and phone calls that you know so and so is no longer with us he committed suicide or she um, committed suicide yeah. or uh, drugs. It's suicide, drugs, or prison. And uh, as a matter of fact, I, yeah, yeah, it, it's, it's it's, yeah, it's. It's amazing. So yeah, it's. Suffering. It's
0: it's.
2: It's hard to talk about uh, yeah. on that level because a lot of my bre- foster brothers and sisters that I've lost to suicide actually they had jobs at the time. They really weren't necessarily struggling with addiction. They were struggling with trauma. Wow. And because of the choices and decisions made uh, in the system while they're in foster care, they were literally convinced right right down to their souls that they're unlovable, undeserving, unwanted, and that society does not want anything to do with them yeah and that's what leads to that to that moment of what's the point in going what's what is exactly. the point in moving forward?
0: yeah. And you have moved forward, and this next episode, I want you to share more about your wife and your children and how you have become, I mean, you have become a, everything that you didn't have, you are for your children and for your wife, and it's, and again, no one's life's perfect, and you'll be the first to admit your life is far from perfect, just like all of ours, but you have come so far from what you've experienced, but I want to make one point in conclusion about hand-in-hand family mentorship. Some of the individuals that will be referred to us um, come from traumatic pasts similar to Matt's, but probably not as extreme. But it's helpful to recognize that they too were built by other people's poor choices. Um, but the hope is that we can feel this compassion for them. We can recognize why life is especially difficult and why this a very large dose of non-judgment is a powerful tool to help heal. So you know it's it's like that quote we hear from social scientists today it's being able to stop saying you know what's the matter with that guy and say what happened to that guy I love that comment but yeah. And again everyone has their agency to choose what they will become and at some point each one of us have to you know, choose to walk away from being a victim, which is what you did. And so in this next podcast, we're going to hear about some of Matt's adult experiences of overcoming and how they've actually, his past has become a stepping stone. So, um, and, and, yeah, go ahead.
2: If I may, my motto has always been from survivor to thriver.
0: Love that's, it.
2: That's where love we go, it. from survivor to thriver. Sorry about
0: that. You <laughs> are a thriver. Matt, you inspire all of us. I want to thank you so much for your time. Chris, do you have, want anything to add in conclusion? Well, I was just going to say
1: I just love your story just because um, it, you can't underestimate the power of the connection, yeah. a connection yeah. with someone, someone that saw you for who you were and believed in you and and connected with you felt the power of of your potential. Yep.
0: Matt, thank you so much. Thanks, guys. We hope you have enjoyed our podcast today and have learned something that will benefit your life. Our organization is called Hand in Hand Family Mentorship. And our goal is to bring hope through friendship and mentoring. We match supportive and encouraging individuals with families that are in need of an added support system. These referrals come to us from the Department of Health and Welfare, Family Advocates, and Boise Rescue Mission Ministries. These are individuals who come from hard places, who are trying to keep their children out of foster care or regain custody. They're trying to get their lives back on track, trying to overcome trauma and lead productive lives. We believe that the power of a positive, healthy connection is the first step in healing. Please visit us at www.handinhandmentoring.org and be a part of the solution.